This is Victoria of TheUnleashedHeart.com, and you're listening to Grieving Voices, a podcast for hurting hearts who desire to be heard, or anyone who wants to learn how to better support loved ones experiencing loss. As a 30-plus year griever and advanced grief recovery method specialist, I know how badly the conversation around grief needs to change. Through this podcast, I aim to educate grievers and non-grievers alike, spread hope, and inspire compassion toward those hurting. Lastly, by providing my heart with ears and this platform, grievers have the opportunity to share their wisdom and stories of loss and resiliency. How about we talk about grief like we talk about the weather? Let's get started. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Grieving Voices. Today, my lovely guest is Arielle Arbershitis, and she is a licensed master social worker specializing in the field of grief and loss. And she's also experienced her own grief and loss, and we will dig into all of that. Uh, Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So let's start with how we connected and, and the losses that bring you to the podcast. Sure, sure. Well, we connected on on Instagram. I was checking out your account and I I believe you were checking out mine and um I have started I guess running with more circles of the grief and loss crowd on Instagram in the last couple of months. Um I am a widow and I've been widowed for almost 7 years. It'll be 7 years this coming May. And um I I'm widowed because of suicide. My husband took his own life. And in addition to that, I've also experienced three miscarriages. Um, And I had that lovely diagnosis of recurrent pregnancy loss or multiple miscarriages. And, um, you know, I'm very grateful to have a baby son now, but it took quite some time um, for me to have a living child. So um, between those two things, I sort of joke around that, I'm a a good poster child for disenfranchised grief because um, suicide loss and um, miscarriage are just um, types of losses that people don't talk about, or at least they don't talk about in the same way as other losses are talked about. And I just feel as a social worker that it's very important to give voice to those losses because it normalizes it for people. It validates their grief and their feelings and, um, those things are very, very important to me. So I'm, I'm a writer, I think, first and foremost. And then second, I'm a social worker. And those two things, they just, they meld together pretty well. Yeah. And actually, I think I reached out to you, in fact, on Instagram. I think there was this immediate connection for both of us. And also, too, like you work in the hospice arena. I do. I do. Um, I started out as a hospice social worker, um, you know, as we say in hospice in the field, meaning um, traveling from home to home and taking care of hospice patients in their homes, whatever their home might be. So whether it's a house, an apartment, whether it's a skilled nursing facility, an assisted living facility, um, whatever they would call their residence, um, I was doing that kind of work uh, in hospice. And then just a little over two years ago, I actually became a manager in hospice. So my title now is manager of support services, which means um, I oversee all of the hospice social workers in our hospice agency, all of the spiritual counselors, 
all of the bereavement counselors and the volunteer coordinator in that program. Um, so that is really cool. And the way I explain it to people who aren't familiar with hospice is I'm basically in uh, managing everything non-nursing related. So anything that's that's not nursing, it kind of falls under me, which is cool. And I don't really like to consider myself a boss. I, I like the the term leader a lot more. So, you know, in, in leadership and in, in my job, we talk about that a lot. I really want to be a leader, not a boss. And I don't micromanage and I like to work with people, not above them. And, you know, the, the hierarchy is not important to me at all. And of course, first and foremost, by profession, I'm still a social worker and I do still see patients in hospice. I just also happen to manage 25 people at the same time. So I don't see as many patients as I used to. So how did you get into this work? Was it those losses that you experienced? It's an interesting question because I, I think people ask me that all the time if they find out about the losses that I've had. And I actually, my husband died before I was doing hospice work. Um, however, I had interned for um, hospice when I was getting my master's in social work. One of my field placements was in hospice. And that's how I knew that I was called to do that work. And I really wanted to. Um, My husband was still living at that point. And then, um, you know, of course, my husband dying by suicide, uh, that has, has nothing to do with hospice, you know, for the most part. But a loss is a loss and grief is grief and widowhood is widowhood. And you know, what you experience in the aftermath, there's so many similarities, no matter what the loss or how someone died. So um, after my husband died, I worked um, at my my previous job for about a year, a little over a year um, before I made the jump to go to hospice um, as a full-time employee, because I felt like in my first year of grief, it probably wasn't the smartest thing to do just for my own self-care. I didn't want to dive right into helping other people with death and dying and their grief and their losses when I really needed to take care of myself. But as more time went on, I thought, okay, you know, well, I'm still grieving because I think you grieve forever. That's, that's, you know, my belief. I, I, I thought, well, I'm still grieving, but I, now I really think that I'm healthy and well enough and healed enough that I could help other people. Um, and I think my personal experience was um, really going to benefit what I could give to a job like that. So I hopped back into hospice at that point and I hadn't had any miscarriages. I hadn't had any baby losses at that point. Um, I wasn't able to have children with my late husband. And that was always a a personal struggle too, where I really wanted to become a parent, but I couldn't and I couldn't in years past and I couldn't. And, you know, all the trying, anybody who's been through this, you know, you know, you try and you try and years pass and it just, it becomes so heavy. Um, So then losing my husband, of course, was losing all that, too. So if I really wanted to be a mom now, I have to find somebody who wants to also be a parent. And how am I ever going to find this perfect person? I have to start all over and, you know, wasting more time. And that's kind of the wheels in my head were turning with that kind of a thing. But I I am remarried um, and I've been married for uh, it'll be four years this summer. So about three and a half years right now that I've been married to my current husband, Jeff. And all of the losses that I've experienced um, with the babies were with him. So um, we had a lot of struggles trying to become parents as well. Um, And it was just loss after loss after loss with him. And um, those were really, really difficult in a completely different way. Um, And as far as the hospice work, it was always really... um, cool seems like the wrong word when I'm talking about loss like that, but it was always really cool to be working for a hospice agency 
when I was going through those losses, because um, you can imagine if you work in the field of death and dying and grief and loss, you're going to be, I think, more compassionate to your colleagues that are going through something like that even when it's disenfranchised grief. Um, and if I needed to, you know, obviously be off from work for a few days to recover, or, you know, go through a surgery and recover from that. I felt like everyone was very thoughtful and caring. And it was a really great place to be working when I had to go through something like that. And I know so many people don't have that privilege. Um, so that was always, um, you know, a blessing. I don't think people we're apt to talk about it with me so much because it's still like that hush hush kind of grief, even in the field of grief and loss, believe it or not. Um, but I did feel a lot of compassion when I worked with, with hospice during those. I can imagine the whispers. It's like, oh, I heard she had a miscarriage. And, you know, it's like the people that feel so uncomfortable with what don't know what to say and don't know how to behave around someone who's had a loss like that. And, you know, I just want for our listeners who may not be really as familiar with the term disenfranchised, um, it was actually coined by a professor in the 80s when he had a student that talked about the death of her ex-husband and how it wasn't, her loss wasn't even really recognized. And even though they had been together for many, many years, and um, but in grief recovery, the label doesn't help us. Um it doesn't tell us how to move beyond loss, but I just wanted to explain the definition a little bit. So when that happened with your first husband, what were some of the things that you experienced and went through in respect to feeling that it was disenfranchised? Like what, can you elaborate more on that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And again, to to your point, I guess I was lucky that I was actually truly married to him. So I was a recognized widow by society versus if we had been in a partnership um, for a while or he was just my fiance or, you know, people just they like the society likes the labels. Right. You know, it doesn't help us grieve, but society recognizes that because this disenfranchised grief is grief that's not recognized or acknowledged by society. Um, in the same way as other grief. So, um, you know, things that I experienced uh, by way of this disenfranchised grief terminology, I think, um, you know, my husband dying by suicide, it it makes people uncomfortable, um, you know, and rightly so, because it it is a trauma, you know, it was a traumatic experience for me. But um, they, they, they rope you in to the story. So the way I explain this is, you know, people will say things like, you know, did you notice anything? Or um, what's, what's the worst version of that question? I always say is, didn't you notice anything? And it, uh, you know, like that just kind of gets you, it kind of takes you into the story as though you were the bystander there and you were, you somehow, have some responsibility to retell that story for people. Um, People don't tend to ask those questions when someone is dying of a medical event, a heart attack, cancer, even, um, you know, if somebody is a soldier in the military, it, it, we know as society, it comes with um, that, you know, expectation that you might be on a dangerous assignment, um, you know, or war might be part of the equation. It doesn't make the loss any easier for anyone who would lose a spouse or a person that way. Um, And that's not what I'm saying. It's just that, you know, 
if you said, you know, my husband died in war, okay, you know, my husband died of cancer, or my husband had a heart attack, nobody asks you to retell how the heart attack went, or what happened, or what was noticed, or what wasn't noticed. And, you know, I think people, sometimes they come from a place of like, morbid curiosity where they actually want to know what happened with my husband. Um, But for the most part, that's not even why those questions are asked. People are just so caught up in that story that they, they, they pull the, you know, the bereaved into it. Um, And I I think that was often really hard. Um, And, you know, just the not talking about it, people will talk about folks who have had long battles with cancer, for example, and, uh, you know, have, have died in that way equally as awful, you know, there's no hierarchy again with the grief, but people don't necessarily want to talk about the fact that my husband took his own life and killed himself in our house. (laughs) And I don't necessarily always want to keep retelling that story over and over either, but it's all very quiet, you know, not to mention his name, not to say, oh, you know, he was such a great person or he was this or he was that, or let me tell you a funny story. And, you know, that was, that was kind of difficult too. It's a different um, honoring in a way by the people who maybe not even, you know, even if you don't necessarily have a close relationship with someone, you can definitely find something you had, you had some interaction, you can, share something, a memory or an interaction or something with that person. But like you said, that's a very good point you bring across is that maybe the griever just wants to hear something positive, the impact that they had on you as a person while they were alive. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, I, I, I feel like when we're talking about disenfranchised grief, I have to bring up the point that there are some people, thankfully, Nobody I was very close to, because I like to think I choose my my friends well, but um, there are people out there who will say things, for example, like, well, you know, he obviously went to hell or, you know, God will never forgive him. It's like that's that disenfranchised grief, right? Like the way he, quote unquote, chose to die was something that's that some people will deem totally unacceptable. Um, And then they're not telling him that because he's dead. They're telling me, which then puts so much more sadness and heaviness and anger on me. Um, And, you know, I think, I think people who have lost anyone to suicide, it doesn't matter if it was a spouse, you know, they probably have experienced some element of that. And it's very isolating. Absolutely. And being a widow at 29, which is how old I was when it happened was isolating enough. So to, to put that, on top of it was, was tough. Which brings to mind things that unhelpful things that people can say too is, well, you're only 29 there, you know, you have so much more opportunity to meet somebody. Did you hear things like that too? Oh my gosh. So my favorite story about this is um, at Rick's funeral. I'm in the, at the front of the funeral home um, with the urn of ashes standing there in like the receiving line, you know, everyone comes through and gives you a hug or tells you they're sorry. And someone actually came up to me on the day of his funeral and said, you know, well, you're still young, you're cute, you'll get married again. Like he had been dead for three days. And um, I just thought that was absolutely horrific. Like the worst thing you could say as I'm standing there with tears streaming down my face, grieving my husband. 
that someone could say that. It seemed odd. And I've always thought to myself, you know, even if people are thinking that and that makes them feel better, like she'll be okay because, you know, she'll find someone again. If they need to think that, there's no need to say it out loud to me, especially that soon in the grieving process. So it it makes me laugh now. You can tell that I'm like chuckling over it. But, um, you know, at the time I was just kind of, I was taken aback and I, I, I didn't really have a response that I can recall. But all of these things that those comments like that, they kind of stack up and it's like, and that's why we isolate as grievers because we, we'd rather just stay home than go out in public and hear these things, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I couldn't find really anybody at that point to understand exactly how I was feeling or close enough. I mean, I was 29. Some of my friends were still, um, you know, planning their weddings and getting married. And I had a whole, I had three weddings to go to my first year of widowhood, which was really, really um, hard as well. And, you know, no fault of anyone. They were, they were celebrating a part of their life. And, you know, one, one part of my life had ended, but it was a, it was a very uh, transitionary time. And it was, it was tough for me because I felt like to find another 29 year old widow, I would be hard pressed to find that person. And then even if I did to find someone who had been bereaved by suicide and had to grapple with the, the trauma and the guilt and the you know circumstances of that, that would be even more rare. And, you know, that was, that, that was really something. So where did you find support? I think I found support, um, you know, through writing because I've always turned to writing my entire life to help me process. And then my writing kind of became my outward grieving. It was like my mourning. Um, And what I did was I had a daily widow blog where I would write every single night and I would publish it every single night. And it, it really gained, um, you know, quite a readership. And so this was back in 2014. I started the blog six days after Rick died. And I just one night decided, you know, I think I have something new to write about and this will help me. And if people read it and it helps them really great, awesome, but it's, I'm really going to write it for me. And when I started out doing it, I was writing not so much to help other people who had been bereaved, but to help everybody in my life and beyond know what I might need in any given moment or how to understand me or how to see what I was going through. So it was kind of my way of reaching out. Like, you don't even have to reach out to me, but if you read this blog nightly, you know, you'll know where I'm at because I was all over the place for that whole first year plus. And I did write every single day for over a year, um, chronicled my whole grieving process in real time. And what ended up happening was my friends, my family, my acquaintances, my colleagues, everybody was reading this. And in turn, they knew how to support me, which was awesome because I was asking for what I needed or I was telling what I, what I needed. And, um, it, it got bigger than that. And a lot of people that I didn't even know were ended up reading it. And, um, you know, I think it's still, fairly widely read because I do get messages from time to time, even though that blog has kind of stopped in time. And then I've started a new blog um, where I'm not labeling myself as a widow so much anymore, but it's, you know, it's, it's still there. And I think people find that they're not as isolated because they have something to go to and they say, okay, somebody went through something like this and it's there. And I know that I'm not, I'm not crazy. I'm normal because I can read these words and, you know, that's always been important to me. Have you thought about turning that into a book? I have. I would really like to. And um, it's definitely 
you know, the next thing on my list of things to publish, it, um, it needs a little bit of editing because my, what I really dream of doing is kind of taking that blog, turning it into a book, but now, you know, almost seven years later and later in, in retrospect, I can, I have insight into all these little pieces and, and chapters that I can put in there now that wouldn't have been there before. So I'd like to have, you know, all the stuff from that first year, plus the me now giving her insights into things. And I think that would be pretty cool. Um, the good news is, you know, it's basically all written. It just needs to be tweaked and edited. So it's just a matter of getting it out there. But that's, it's actually um, one of my goals for 2021 to, to have it have it be out there published. Well, I would love to support you in that. I started my blog in 2014, my first blog too, and where I was blogging about personal development, growth, spirituality, when I felt like I was starting my personal growth journey after loss and grief and all of that, um, and ended up writing a book too, um, and self-publishing it. So I would love to see that come to fruition for you. And um, I'm sure we can definitely have side chats about that in the future. <laughs> That's um, awesome. And and yeah, I mean, I applaud you for, for your book as well. I mean, it's just an awesome thing, giving voice to this kind of grief. It's so important. I can't, I really can't emphasize it enough. It's not a, a self-serving thing, you know, and I'm sure you understand that too. You're not, you're not publishing a book as this self-serving practice. And that's not why I would choose to do it either. It's just, you want to be a voice for these things. Well, and it was very therapeutic. I mean, that was the one thing I didn't expect from the experience was that it was very therapeutic, but absolutely. So I want to give you the opportunity though, to share about Rick in a way that you maybe didn't get the opportunity to, to others during that time. And maybe in your blog, I'm sure you expressed it through your blog, but tell us about Rick. Rick was a complicated individual um, for sure. Um, As you can imagine for somebody who did take his own life, but he loved the beach. He loved to, he, he loved to look up at the sun and, um, you know, you could find him on a 55 degree day laying out on a towel in the backyard just to catch the rays of the sun, even though it would seem to me too cold to, um, be laying in the sun. It was something that he would do. And, um, you know, I, I think about him, the most when I see the ocean or the sea um, and the sun shining on it, because I I think that's where he felt most at peace when he was so conflicted and, you know, in emotional pain, I guess I would, is how I would say it. And, you know, I really, I believe in being real about people, you know, so there are a lot of things that I can say that are really wonderful about him and that would be perfectly truthful, but you know, I don't want to talk him up either because, you know, he obviously did have some struggles. Um, And, you know, I think it's important for people to know, you know, we can still grieve someone who was complicated and complicated grief is a thing too, right? So, um, you know, but, but Rick was very thoughtful. He was a very thoughtful person. He would write me notes all the time. I have stacks, piles of handwritten notes from him still. Um, It was uh, kind of a regular thing where I would come home from when I was, I was married when I was in grad school, um, getting my master's in social work and I was working full time. So I would go to school at night from like 6.30 to 9.30. I'd be getting home around 10 PM. And 
oftentimes he would be asleep already and he would leave me a note on the kitchen table or a note on the counter. And, um, you know, that was kind of a regular thing and they were very sweet and sometimes they were very funny. Um, and most of the time he was funny without meaning to be funny. So, um, that was very cute. I know that in his mind, he felt like he was doing me a favor by committing suicide because he wanted me to have a better life than what he thought that he could give me. And he felt like he was giving me a gift, which is just to me so sad. And I know this because of a suicide note that he left for me, not because I'm, you know, creating some kind of story around it, but based on what he wrote to me, I know that that's how he felt. And I find that very heavy and sad, but he also was thanking me in the note. So I always like to think that, you know, maybe the last emotions he was feeling before he died were of gratitude instead of despair. And that's kind of the story I tell myself so that it doesn't become too traumatic and too heavy. It's a lot of conflicting feelings in that. Yeah. That's a lot of grief. That's what grief is. It's the conflicting feelings. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Sure. Moving on to losses you've experienced. Well, and you found love again. I did. Love again. I did. Uh, I did. I was not ready. People always say, how did you feel that you were finally ready? I was not ready. (laughs) I did not say, let's go out and date again. No, Jeff just happened as most things in life do, just like everything else that's ever happened to me. He just happened and we became friends and then we became more than friends. And now we are married and, you know, we have a beautiful family together, but um, it takes a the right person to, I think, marry someone who's been widowed, especially someone who's been widowed by suicide. Um, And he happened to be that person. And I am so, so lucky to have found him early enough in life that I get to have a lot of years with him, hopefully. That's beautiful. So what is one thing that you would share with others who may have experienced a similar loss as you, or maybe not, either with Rick or with the miscarriages? I think... You know, it's important to find your army of support. And, you know, I have to say that as a social worker and especially in the profession I'm in, you know, support is huge. Support doesn't have to look like, you know, 400 people reading a blog every night. It can be just your best friend, just your mom or your dad. You know, it could be your neighbor that you have a cup of tea with, you know, it It can really be anybody that makes you feel a little bit lighter, a little bit less alone. And, you know, by the same token, even though grief can feel so isolating and sometimes be so isolating, you're not alone. I felt alone so much of the time, but, but really I wasn't, you know, there's so many other people that sadly have experienced a loss like mine. Um, And I feel that way, especially um, when we talk about like the multiple miscarriages, you know, it's, it's not talked about. It's, it's, we're getting better at that, I think, but it's not talked about to the level it, it should be and could be, but it's, it's so prevalent and nobody says anything. And if you're feeling some kind of way, somebody else out there, hundreds of other somebodies, thousands of other somebodies are feeling that exact same way. So it's either just a matter of knowing that to make yourself feel supported or finding those people to make yourself feel supported. And, you know, thankfully we live in the age of technology where you can Google things and you can find Facebook groups and Instagram 
um, groups and blogs. And there's just so many ways to do things virtually if you are isolated physically that you're not able to go find things. And of course, you know, we're in a pandemic, so we're not doing these large group gatherings and clubs and things anyway, but there's so much out there. There's, there's tons of things out there. Like this podcast. Exactly. Like this podcast. <laughs> Perfect example. Would you like to share about the losses of those little babies? Um, sure, sure. Um, I, uh, I felt a strong connection with all of them. And I think it was shocking to me how um, little support was given to me by the health system every time I had a loss. And, you know, that's one of the things that professionally I'm trying to work on quite a bit in the field of grief and loss. And I had some uh, perinatal death and grief training recently um, so that I can try to help folks in the situation that I was in, you know, no matter what gestation. And, you know, there's, there's again, there's no hierarchy with this grief, but it was just so hard for people to know what to say or do in the health system in my own life. And, you know, my husband, Jeff was very, very supportive. And I used to write little notes to myself because I always go to writing and I used to write little notes to myself during those different losses, just saying, you know, whenever Jeff is annoying or you're frustrated with him, just remember this moment and how amazing he has been today doing this and this and this and this. And I would list every way that he was able to support me through those, because especially when we got to you know, the third miscarriage, um, I was a mess. I mean, it was just so, so traumatic. Um, and it was just this roller coaster of, uh, happiness and devastation over and over again, because unfortunately for us with the last two losses, you know, we had gone in and we had ultrasounds, everything was fine and perfect and healthy. We saw the heartbeat, we saw the baby moving, Um, and you know, so you kind of, you breathe a sigh of relief thinking everything is fine. And then for weeks to pass and then to go in and for them, um, to say that the baby had died, you know, shocking, awful. Um, and then the, the third time around, you know, you think, okay, well, it's, it's finally, it's finally my time. Like it's really going to happen this time. Um, you know, this could not possibly happen again. And you hold your breath and you're just so traumatized and you go in and you go to ultrasound after ultrasound and they're all fine. Everything's great. Everybody gives you the thumbs up and you just, you keep breathing a little bit more, and a little bit more. And then to go back and have them tell you, you know, the heartbeat's slowing down and we think the baby is going to die for the, for the, the last baby loss that I had, I actually left the doctor's office knowing that the baby was still alive, but going to die. And I had to go home and essentially wait for the baby to die, which was totally different from my first miscarriage, which was miscarrying at home very painfully um, and very different from my second miscarriage, which was finding out that the heartbeat had stopped and the baby had already died and then getting a DNC surgery to remove the baby um, that had died. So this third time it was like, okay, well, it's going to die, but we can't do a surgery yet because it's still alive and there's really nothing we can do. So go home and wait for it to die. So that was gut wrenching. And um, I think Jeff and I just didn't really know what to do or how to react. And like, you know, what do you do? Do you go to work and just like know that the baby's in there dying and you can't do anything as its mother? And 
it was so all my losses were so incredibly different too, which is why I feel like I can relate to different miscarriage stories because, you know, they weren't all the same. So if somebody had the first kind of loss that I had, I get that they had the second kind of loss. I get that the third kind, I get that. Um, you know, did they all make me stronger? Probably, um, more resilient. Absolutely. Uh, but it was a really, really hard time for me and for us. And I really began to think that I was just not going to be a parent. Um, and I, I pretty much did not want to try to, to become a parent anymore because the thought of having a fourth loss was almost worse than anything. Um, but like I said, at the beginning of, of this, you know, I do have a son, he's 16 months old and he is amazing. Um, but I was terrified (laughs) for my entire pregnancy that something was going to go horribly wrong. Um, as you can understand, and I know, many moms have been in that, in that place too. So, you know, there, there, there is a, a story unfolding and, you know, we always only see the moment that we're in, like the page that we're on. And I was really stuck there on those particular pages of grief for a long time, not really understanding that, you know, the pages would continue to flip. And at some point I'd be feeling differently, even if it meant that I didn't have a beautiful son out of it, because, you know, let's face it, you know, that won't happen for everybody. And that's really, really tough too. If I could hug you, I would give you a (laughs) hug right now. I just got teary eyed because I can't imagine what that felt like for you. I just can't. So my mama heart goes out to you. I had a conversation too with another um, griever about miscarriage early on in my podcast. And she was talking about, you know, you go into the doctor's office and you see all these women with the big bellies and, you know, joy and on their faces and it's like you're in the same waiting room mm-hmm. and how torturous that must feel mm. to your heart and um something needs to be done about that absolutely oh that was a bit, it was very difficult I almost think though what was worse was leaving not once but twice um for two of my miscarriages leaving that room where I had had an ultrasound knowing my baby was either dead or for the the other time that you know was going to die and you leave and they say like okay your copay will be thirty dollars like nobody's been briefed that I just had a horrible devastating conversation they are making me essentially pay for the bad news that I just received. Like there was just no sense of decorum. Um, And that's always been, uh, you know, a a sticking point. There's somewhere in a folder in my home office where I have all these notes of what I would like to do to educate people in those professions, just because I have this unique background of the grief and loss piece. And, and it's just, it's not in, um, fertility clinics and it's not in, uh, you know, OBGYN offices to the level that it should be. And I'm sure there are practices that are really building that and boosting that up and are really great at it. The ones that I was part of were not really great at it. And I think it was just a deficit, you know, nobody meant any harm, you know, certainly, but they just hadn't been ever given education or um, training or anything like that. And not once was I ever given even a flyer for a support group or anything, even loss after loss after loss. So I still find that incredibly shocking. It's incredibly sad. It really is. And I've, I've often said to Jeff, 
that um, I am the kind of person, especially because of my profession, where I know how to find resources and I know how to get what I need if someone's not giving it to me. And I could do that and I could take it upon myself. But there are so many other women out there who are not able to do that, who are not going to do that, who are not going to know to do that. Um, and it, what a disservice we're doing to those people. So, well, and because grief is cumulative and it's cumulatively negative, it's very likely, highly likely that someone coming into that situation and having to leave knowing that their baby will die or has already passed, they've had grief before that. Mm -hmm. And so it's just more grief um, stacked on to their lives. And it's almost like, well, can't they just like, create this separate unit of the facility that's specially for holding the hearts of people, mothers, you know, like the families, because it's your husband too. Like, how did he, like, how did he navigate that too? I mean, it's. We just, we navigated it together as a team for each other because he didn't have anybody you know, to talk to, to support him, you know, they don't support the dads. It just, it's not a thing. And, you know, to, to your point about, um, you know, can't we have a separate unit or waiting room or area or something, you know, I work in, in healthcare. If that's not possible, cause I know that's not always possible. That's a beautiful dream. And it involves, you know, money and space and all sorts of things. If that's not possible, at least you let the people who've just received bad news sit in that room as long as they need. Take the time that you need. Um, I'm here for you when you're ready to go. And then you assign someone to walk them out, you know, whether it's an arm around them or you walk them down a different hallway so they can leave outside of a different door. You don't have them just check out like everybody else where everybody's waiting with their big belly and they get charged a copay by a chipper, cheerful person. And they're out in the elevator before they know it with no support. You know, there are, there are ways to do it. I think, you know, there's an ideal way, like what you were saying, that would be the ideal, but there are all, there's always ways to think outside of the box. And I think people are either just unwilling to go there or they um, have not experienced a loss like that. So they don't even know that that would feel good or different or would be important. And I think that's just where the education and training comes in. I also seem to believe, this is my own belief, is that because it's so common like miscarriage has become so common that it's just like we've become desensitized to it. And, you know, when you work in that environment, I imagine you're like probably number 13 that came in that day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering too, like who's supporting the healthcare workers who are in those positions. And it's mm-hmm. like, almost like, are they just separating themselves? Are they disassociating from the situation because if they didn't to bring that home with them? And it kind of speaks to what the work that you do mm-hmm. in hospice. Like how do you separate yourself from that so you don't bring it home with you? So I think along with education, it's also too recognizing that there is a problem. But then when you recognize there's a problem, you have to do something about it. Mm-hmm. You're so right. You're so right. I'm, you know, who is supporting those healthcare workers and how desensitized are they? And, you know, what do they know and not know about what that feels like? Or, 
you know, perhaps they've experienced their own losses and then they're faced with that every day. So they, they have to compartmentalize. They can't even go there, you know, and, you know, we can assume and, you know, we'll never completely know everybody's individual stories. But yeah, I mean, absolutely. There has to be a way to support the people in those professions and positions. And um, you're, you're right, too. I, I, we, we try to do that in, in hospice because, you know, I have I've sat with many people who have died. I've watched people die many, many, many times. There have been weeks where um, I've had multiple patients die. And, you know, it's, it's to be expected because I work in hospice and, um, you know, that's, we know that's what's going to happen. Um, and oftentimes it's really very beautiful and positive and as an experience, you know, much like birth, it, it, there, there can be a celebration for death. You know, it's not always that way, but, you know, I really like to destigmatize the death and dying stuff too, because it's not always this, this awful, terrible experience, but, um, it can be really heavy. It can be really tough. Um, and certainly, you know, I come home and I think about patients that I've had who have died, um, you know, and I still do, you know, if I have had patients that have died five years ago, I still think about them from time to time. And, um, you know, that's part of the work too. It, it touches you, it, it teaches you things. Um, and I've learned so much from the people that I've met and from their family members. I think, you know, it, it's going to sound kind of trite, but self-care is really important. And I don't mean like, you know, so you go home and you take a hot bath and you light the candles, you know, that's not exactly what I mean, but you kind of have to know when you're, you like reached your, your point of being a little bit too filled with grief to know, okay, maybe I need a day off today, or maybe I just need to take a weekend to go for a hike, to clear my mind or, you know, whatever it is that would really speak to you and be helpful to you. I think we have to be good about tuning into that. And healthcare is the kind of profession where we tend to just go, go, go. And it's about the patient and not about us. And it's about the people that we're serving and not about us because, you know, that's why we are called to those professions, but you're not any good to anybody else. If you're not taking care of yourself first, it's like the whole oxygen mask analogy. You know, you got to put it on yourself and then you take care of everybody else that you're supposed to take care of. It's a lot like being a parent, you know, got to take care of yourself first to be a good parent to your child or your children. I feel that way about my patients. I feel that way about my team uh, of employees. And, um, you know, we, we try to encourage things that will fill our cup so that we have things to give to other people. Um, And whether that's resilience training or um, retreats from time to time, or just um, we do like a morning inspiration on our morning conference call every morning in hospice. And sometimes it's a joke and it's funny. And sometimes it's more inspiring um, and reflective. And we'd, we'd try to do things here and there. It's hard because, you know, again, we're in a pandemic and healthcare is <laughs> very tricky right now and even heavier than usual, especially at hospice. Um, but we try. And I think the effort speaks volumes to people see that you're trying to care for them. And make sure that they have what they need. So I think that's important too, that the effort. Wonderful points. I mean, this, this podcast episode could very much be for healthcare community too. I'm very wordy. Um, you have to tell me like, okay, you've, you've said enough. <laughs> no, no, it's all good. It's all good. So what has your grief taught you? So much. Um, I, it's really been a journey to learn myself. If I'm being honest, um, you know, I will, I will never be the same, 
because of um, Rick dying. I will also never be the same because of all the miscarriages that I've had, but they've shaped me and they've molded me um, in ways that are allowing me to be the best version of myself. And um, I think offer bits and pieces of that better self to others. And, you know, I'm still a work in progress. You know, I would hope that I'm not the best that I can ever be. I want to keep improving until the day that I die, but I've just learned so much about myself as a person and what I really need and what I really want and about fear. When I lost Rick, I was very, very afraid. I was afraid of so many things, what life would hold. I was afraid of the unknown. I was afraid of moving. I was afraid of staying. I was afraid of not finding somebody again. Um, you know, I was afraid of people not understanding. I was afraid of financial burden. I mean, I could, I could write you a list of 150 things. Um, and I was afraid of so many other things that had nothing to do with the loss of Rick. But I think it made me so much braver because I thought, well, if the worst thing that could ever happen to me has happened to me, nothing could possibly be as bad as that day. So just live every day like it's the best day that you're going to have and do whatever it is you want to do. And, you know, tell that person exactly what you want to say. Don't keep it inside and, you know, share this moment with this person because you're, you have that fleeting thought. Don't let it be just a passing thought. Go ahead and do it. And, kind of like actions speak louder than words. So I just started doing all the things that scared me. And um, that was a very eye-opening experience. And I think it was very positive and it kind of added to my resiliency. And um, I don't know, um, you're probably familiar with like the post-traumatic growth. So I feel like, you know, I... I could be a poster child for that too. You know, like you have so many bad things happen to you, but I'm a really a very happy person. And I think that that makes that weirds people out sometimes, but um, it's because I have learned so much about myself and I've tapped into so much resilience over the course of time that it has just served me so well in so many beautiful ways that can't possibly be ignored. Um, so it's really less of like a happy, cheerful, sunny overly positive personality and more of like, I've learned from this and now I can use it and it's made life so much better. Um, and kind of like the, I guess it's a famous quote, like, you know, um, shared joy is double joy and shared sorrow is half sorrow. So, you know, that's, that's kind of how I think of things, you know, that's why I write so that I can double the joy and I can have the sorrow in two. I love that. Love that. So I can relate to the post-traumatic growth. Um, <laughs> and I can also relate to, well, let me get your take on this. Because when you've experienced, when you feel like you've lived three lifetimes and you look back on your life and you recognize where, where you've grown and how far you've come and things like that, I have found it really challenging to look at others and see them suffer and knowing that they don't have to like there, there is more to life than what you're feeling right now in this moment. But it's such a challenge for people to get out of that headspace. And, you know, we have to be in it for a time. It's whatever time that is, but do you agree or disagree or what are you, what is your thoughts on this 
maybe like this idea of being addicted to the suffering itself. You're speaking about other people, not you and I, right? When you say that. Right, right. Because, Um, you know, like when when you've come so far, it's like you you just want to pull everybody with you. (laughs) You know, it's like, just come with me. Just let's come. You know, it's not so bad over here. This is amazing over here. And yeah, it doesn't feel good in the process, but no one ever said, I had a post the other day. Um, healing feels amazing, said no one ever. Like the process, <laughs> you know, the process sucks. It yeah. really does. But it's like getting on the other side of that. Mm-hmm. You you have to feel everything to feel the good and the joy. And I think that is very hard for some people, harder than for, for you and me. And, you know, we have most likely either been given the tools by others or we have built and created our own tools and kind of adapted, whether it's because of um, privilege or whether it's because, um, you know, we've had experiences earlier in life than some other people. And that has taught us how to build resilience and, um, you know, use history as a, as an educator you know, not everybody is as lucky as we are where they feel that they have those tools and that strength and those experiences to, to build from. Um, so that's why my thinking is, you know, for you and for me, we have a greater responsibility then to do things like this podcast and be that voice so that we can share the narrative and we can, we can give guidance, really. I mean, I think really that's what this is. It's, it's you're giving voice, but you're also guiding other people, it can be different. It doesn't have to be the way it is right now. And like I said earlier, I think we grieve forever, but our grief changes, you know, it morphs and and, and it changes and you don't get over grief. It will always be part of you, but certainly you can heal. And, um, you know, certainly you can be joyful again and um, everything can exist in the same space. So, you can feel pain, but you can also feel joy. It's not one or the other. It isn't black and white. And that's something that I I talk to people about all the time because there's so much all or nothing black and white thinking out there just because it's like in our culture, that's just the way people are taught. And they just, they grow to believe it's like, well, if I feel sad, then I'm just going to feel sad. Well, you can feel sad and you should feel sad because things, sad things have happened to you and you have every right to feel sad, but you can also feel joy at the same time. Um, and you know, you can feel other things too, anger and comfort and contentment and worry and confusion, you know, that everything can all exist in the same space and we learn to navigate it. So, you know, those are my thoughts. We, you know, you and me, we have, uh, we have a greater responsibility because we have learned things and we have found things that, that work and help. And that's why we're doing what we do. That's why you do what you do. And that's why I do what I do. And it takes all kinds of people to make this beautiful world work. There are many jobs I would never want to do, just like people would never want to do my job. And they, they tell me all the time, <laughs> but, but there are lots of things they do that I wouldn't want to do either. And that's why it takes all kinds of people to make the world work, which is great. Yes. 100%. I agree. <laughs> I just had a post come to me yesterday, actually. Um, I haven't written about this yet. Um, but someone had reached out to me and asked me a question along these lines. And, you know, like someone doesn't identify themselves as a griever, but I can see that it's grief and, you know, it's past relationship that they haven't, they're not recognizing, like, I'm over that. Like, I dealt with that. 
I don't need to dig that up. Right. Mm-hmm. And my, what came to my mind was that if you can talk about it today, like you and I, like you talked about your experience and you're not laying on the floor, a pile of mess. Right. And I can talk about my experiences and I'm not on the floor, like a pile of mess. That's when, you know, you've done a lot of work when you can talk about it, mm-hmm. when you can share your experience when you can help others through story and, and, and not like a ruminating in the story, but in a, this is what helped me. This is what's possible. I don't know about you, but for me, I found my potential when I shed all of that. Mm-hmm. When I shed all the stories, when I shed the anger, when I shed all the resentment, the grief that had kept weighing on me, the grief has not gone away. I still grieve my father, certain relationships that changed because of that experience and the trauma that happened to me after. Those things still happen and that doesn't change that experience, but I can talk about it and it not take me back to that little girl that is scared and fearful and, you know, all those emotions that you talked about. Um, you're, You're absolutely right. And, you know, for, we can also be those people that are okay now and thriving and, and share that with others, but also say, you know, we were on the floor, a pile of mess at one point, and now we're not. And, you know, that's possible for other people too, because we can be, we can keep it real. We used to be a mess and now we're okay. Oh, I was Um, a train wreck. (laughs) I was a train wreck. Yeah. And, you know, I can laugh about it. I was a train wreck. My life was a mess. I was, you know, abused alcohol and, Got myself in some really scary situations and um, and look at you now <laughs> but grief was the root of it grief yeah. was the root of it and that's where people don't connect the dots of what is happening in their lives these repetitive behaviors these things that we're seeking to feel better they don't connect it to the grief in their lives and i want to ask you something because i have a sneaking suspicion though that that loss of rick wasn't your first grieving experience no, it was not my first grieving experience. No, I, I lost um, my great aunt when I was a teenager and she was much closer than a grandmother to me. She was my best friend, truly. We used to sleep over together and um, she was very, very special to me. So when I was 16, she died. Um, I experienced that loss and I had experienced the loss of both of my grandfathers um, too. So in, in, I would say early adulthood, in my very early 20s. So um I am lucky to have a 92-year-old grandmother and an 85-year-old grandmother still living, but I had lost both of my grandfathers as well. So it was not my first rodeo with grief, but it was a very different grief um, and a very traumatic grief when when Rick died. And that's what I say. Grief is cumulative and it's cumulatively negative. It stacks up, right? Yeah. Well, you kind of talked about ways that others supported you and how writing kind of became your way to express what you needed and how you wanted to be supported, what would you suggest to people who aren't writers and need? Yeah. What they, Oh my God, I need to edit this out. Like spit it out, Victoria. (laughs) So writing was a huge outlet for you and expressing on what you needed and how you needed to be supported. And it was for me too, but I don't know if anybody read it, but (laughs) um, I wasn't very good about vocalizing um, either. And so I journaled, I internalized a lot, which was not healthy. It was good for me, but it wasn't a healthy way to approach 
I was an isolated griever. I, that's, I mean, I was the epitome of an isolated griever. I don't need your help. I can do this, you know, mm-hmm. because, and here's the thing, it kind of ties back to when you said resiliency, you know, when you lose a parent as a child, you don't choose resiliency. You have to get resilient. Mm-hmm. And so um, I hate when people say that when children are resilient they bounce back. I hate that. Don't say that people, please don't say that. If a child, if you recognize a child is resilient, it's not because they chose to, mm-hmm. because they didn't have a choice. Yeah. Anyway, I digress. What would you suggest to someone who isn't a writer to how to communicate what they need and how to be supported? I think maybe the easiest thing to do would be to take the pressure off um, and not think about grief and think about how to explain their huge grief to someone, because that is a you know, that's a tall order trying to put that into words for yourself, let alone to other people to tell them what you need. Instead, I would encourage someone to think about what brings them comfort. You know, is it a a special warm coffee drink? Is it um, watching funny movies with a person that you really care about and can laugh with because you feel safe with them? You know, is it going for a walk in nature whatever the case might be, you know, but think about the things that will really make you feel comfort. Like, is there a special comfort food? Like, do you just love when you feel like crap, you want to eat, you know, homemade macaroni and cheese, you know, whatever it is for, for these, these folks, think about those things, take the grief out of it. Just like what would make you feel better, be really literal. And then tell those people that that would be something that would be awesome. Like, you know, could you make that mac and cheese that I love so much that we had last year at this picnic and like, ask them for that. Or say, you know, I, I'm feeling kind of low today. I really want to watch Friends, on a marathon of Friends. You know, do you want to come over and hang out with me for a little while? Now, it puts it on them to ask rather than someone offering it to them. But, um, you know, to answer your questions, that's what I would suggest because that's not really making them talk about the griefiness. <laughs> it's just, you know, having them tap into like, what do I need? What's going to make me feel better? Like it won't cancel my grief out, but it's going to make me feel loved and warm and comforted. Um, and some people can give it to themselves. Like, you know, I tend to do that. And especially like in the pandemic, you know, we're very handicapped with what we can do, but, you know, I'll think about, you know, I just really need a cup of coffee and to sit with a blanket over me for 20 minutes by myself and I'll feel better and rejuvenated. Like I can do that. I don't need to call a friend to give me that. And some people, you know, some people might, and that's perfectly fine, but there are lots of things you can give to yourself too. So I think recognizing what's going to make you feel better. And sometimes I tell people, you know, if they do journal or they don't journal, it doesn't matter, but maybe just get out a piece of paper and write down all the things that really make you feel good and comforted um, and happy and like really, really small, like the cup of coffee, like the warm blanket, like your mom's macaroni and cheese, whatever, um, for very random examples here. But um, I, I, I think, you know, that's, that's what I would encourage people to do. I think it works. Radical self-love. <laughs> yeah. My newsletter, my newsletter, as right now we're recording, it's February and this probably won't go live until like May, April. I'm not sure exactly when, but um, at this time, I, my monthly series for my newsletter is self-love because, well, it's February, you know, Valentine's love, whatever, Mm -hmm. but the greatest love we can give is to ourselves. So thank you for highlighting that. Yeah. It's like, we don't necessarily need to get anything from anybody. And really, honestly, 
that was a message that took me well into my thirties to understand late, like probably in the last five years, to be honest, like I can give to myself. I don't need to get from other people. And I I should, I should give to myself first. Mm -hmm. I should fill my cup first. I should understand what I need first Mm -hmm. because that's being an integrity. It's living in integrity with yourselves. And I think we sabotage and, and minimize the importance of that in grief and when we tend to be people pleasers or, mm-hmm. you know, we have no boundaries. I mean, there's grief brings up everything that you need to heal <laughs> within mm-hmm. yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, at least and that's what thing. I, that's what I was saying before lead by example, you know, like you, you know, you've learned all these things with the self love and everything else. Like, so there you go. You're leading by example and I can lead by example of this is what we can do to make ourselves feel better. And we're, we're teaching other people. It seems very simple, but you know, we're, we're teaching other people. We're really doing it. And on that note, is there anything else you would like to share? I don't know. You know, I, I always joke with people that I am a, an oversharer, <laughs> you know, I'm not just a sharer, I'm an oversharer. And one of my physician friends once said to me, you know, there's no such, such thing as being an oversharer, be- as long as you are only sharing your own stories. You know, if you're not sharing things about other people, there's really no such thing as oversharing. It's just sharing. And I always think of that. Um, but I'm an oversharer. So there will always be things that I have left to share. But today, I think we had an awesome conversation. And um, I feel like we shoved a lot into one hour, which was was pretty cool. Um, you could tell we're both writers. I, I, I get the vibe, you know. <laughs> so but no, it's, it's been a pleasure. I'm just very grateful that, you know, you had uh, invited me to be on the podcast. I think you're doing amazing work. And I'm just so happy to be part of it. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. And there is one final question that I didn't ask directly that I like to end every podcast episode with. Sometimes I forget, but so what brings you the most joy these days? I have to say, um, you know, besides the, the examples of my family, you know, my husband, my son, my beautiful bonus daughters, um, Jeff's two daughters, my animals, um, besides those things, it's really still writing. It's still writing with the intent to help other people because I feel like that is what gives me purpose and having a purpose is very, very important to me. Um, so, you know, my family of course gives me purpose, but writing to share, to help, um, to guide is so, so very meaningful to me. So that gives me so much joy, you know, something as simple as being, on Instagram and sharing different things with people that brings me joy. Blogging still brings me joy. Being on the podcast today, you know, it brings me joy. Writing books brings me joy. It's kind of like breathing to me. It's, it's uh, self-soothing and it helps me connect with other people. You know, I'm a social worker, so I like to connect with other people. Um, and um, uh, human connection is very important to me and writing is how I do that first and foremost. That's beautiful. I can relate to much of that. I'm sure. Well, thank you so, so much for being here. This was a jam-packed conversation. I absolutely loved it. So thank you. Thank you. All right. When you unleash your heart, you unleash your life. Much love. From my heart to yours, thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please share it, because sharing is caring. And until next time... 
Give and share compassion by being a heart with ears. And if you're hurting, know that what you're feeling is normal and natural. Much love, my friend.